This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, it is 10:45. I'm supposed to start at 10:45 and I'll need every minute I can get. So, we're going to go ahead and begin. Uh if you remember last night, uh, I couldn't remember what the seminar was called, even though I gave a title, so I'm proud of you for coming anyway. I do know a few things uh, in life. I was just sleep deprived. It is called Why I Don't Get the Gospel, and so you're here, I'm here. Let's pray and ensure that God is here, and then let's talk about Jesus. Yeah? yeah. All right. God in heaven, thank you for the privilege to know you, uh, that this message of Christ our righteousness is a blessing. And in the very short allotted time I'm given, I pray that you would bless us, that it would be clear, that it would be simple, and above all else, we pray that it would warm our hearts. And we ask this now in Christ Jesus' name, amen. I have the privilege of working for the Pennsylvania Conference. We have started a school of evangelism that is head over heels in love with the message of Christ our righteousness. The school is called CORE. I have postcards here. We have a booth. It's booth 120, and you can find us there. Um, we have all kinds of experiences. It's a nine-month uh, training program that's for 18 to 30-ish age range. A little bit more than that's totally fine, but you have to be after high school. We have work-study options to make it more affordable. Uh, you're going to learn how to do Bible work, canvassing, uh, how to use social media to advance the gospel, health evangelism, organic agriculture. We just got back from spending two weeks in Cuba. Man, that was a blessing. Uh, we also have a heavy emphasis on mental health and then practical Christianity and knowing how to share your faith through public speaking and so forth. So Dwight Nelson's teaching on preaching, uh, Stephen Grabner on Daniel and Revelation, Skip McCarty on the Covenants, uh, Campus Ministries is coming to teach us about campus stuff, Nathan Renner, Jay Rosario, Rico Hill, Paul Conniff, Chad Bernard. Um, anyway, we got booth 120, come see us. Uh, there's a lot more information to be found there. And we have a new promo video that should be assaulting your Facebook feed any day now. So uh, let's go. Why I don't get the gospel. So our seminar this morning is on the topic of the gospel and why it's so difficult for us to believe it. Uh, it would really take four to five sessions to fully do this justice, but I'm thankful for the time that I am given. So I'm going to have to move with purpose, uh, but all of my notes will be available to you and I'm going to resource you. I have a lot of stuff I can give you that will explain more after today's seminar. Um, so Adam and Eve fell. And they fell by being convinced of lies about God and his character, right? Satan insinuated these lies about him. And they were believing lies about themselves and their standing with God, right? This is what set them up for a lot of trouble. The lie that God is not for you, he's against you. That he's withholding good things from us. That his warnings are meaningless and that he can't be trusted. I'm going to have to take care of myself because God won't take care of me. These lies are deeply embedded in our DNA since the fall, and it's going, to require, it's going to require us encountering the truth and daily reflecting upon that truth to overcome them. And I believe this is why Ellen White says we should spend a thoughtful hour every single day reflecting upon the life of Christ and particularly the closing scenes of his suffering and of his uh, eventual death. So the gospel is meant to uproot those lies in our hearts and minds and to root us in a truth that can set us free. As it says in John 8 and verse 37, uh, that you may know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Believing these lies leads us to make decisions that harm ourselves and others, which in turn leads us to be filled with shame, with guilt, with self-hatred and thoughts of condemnation. So something we're going to have to wrap our minds around as a people is that sin is not merely physical or verbal actions or unholy thoughts. Sin is deeply embedded in the psyche, and it's an outworking of a belief system of lies that we're believing at the very core of our being. It's much deeper than I said the wrong thing, I did the wrong thing. There's something wrong in the core belief level within my being that has to change. And Satan, the Bible says, is the author of those lies in John chapter 8 and verse 44. So in this context, then, we've become so hardened through our guilt and shame that a gospel that offers a solution and a receiving a love that we know we don't deserve is going to awaken opposition and suspicion. You ever have someone come up to you and offer you a gift that you really know you don't deserve and you wonder, what are these people about? You're maybe even a little bit distrustful initially and hesitant. Those lies that we've been dealing with for thousands of years have caused us to not believe what the gospel actually teaches and to distrust what the gospel actually teaches. 
And this is why we don't believe the gospel and would prefer a solution that comes from within ourselves and our own efforts instead of learning to find security in the achievements of another. That's why. I would feel better about trying to earn it myself, knowing fairly well that I'm not going to get there, than to have to face the fact that I have nothing to offer and need someone else to give me something that I know good and well that I don't deserve. But thankfully, in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 3, the prophetic call of Jesus offers a solution to these deeply embedded lies in our core beliefs. He says he's coming to preach good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garments of praise for a spirit of heaviness. Guys, this is what most of our experiences look like. We're filled with mourning. We don't feel that we could be accepted. We are bound in prison to lies and discouragement and defeat. And Jesus is coming to give relief to all of this. The whole point of the gospel is to heal every aspect of our being. This verse shows us that God has a plan to unravel those lies, the shame and the thoughts of condemnation. And he sends Jesus to do a powerful work of redemption and to deliver us from the emotional and psychological havoc that sin has brought in its train. And this is why I'm so passionate about the topic of mental health. Because the gospel is not just meant to heal bad theology. Right? When we're calling people out of Babylon, we're not just telling them to exchange philosophical views. It's putting people in captivity emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. Are you understanding me? The gospel is meant to set the entire person free, and that's what Jesus came to do. And this is why I think we need to be talking about this topic even more. And here's what happens when we let Jesus heal the very depth of our being and those root lies that Satan has sown in our, in our DNA for thousands of years. This is what happens when we allow that good leaven to leaven the lump of our own hearts. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. This is Isaiah 61 and verse 4. They shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. Those perpetual generational curses that these lies have caused. This is what our lives feel like when facing what our sins have done to us and the people around us and what other people's sins have done to us. It makes our life feel like a heap of ruins, doesn't it? It's just a disaster. I'm a disaster. But the true gospel of Christ, the message of Christ, our righteousness, has this very healing effect upon people. It heals us, right? It repairs the ruined places. It raises up the desolations. And this is what's happened in my life. This is what's happened in the lives of the people that I minister to. And we have a powerful case study from the 1889 revivals that happened in the Adventist church when this message of Christ, our righteousness, was brought to our people who were in darkness and bondage because they didn't see Jesus in our own message. And they felt overwhelmed by the expectations of God without knowing how to achieve them. You ever been there? Overwhelmed by the expectations of God, but not knowing how to get there? Paul talked about this in Romans 7. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, how much good dwells? Nothing. Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I don't find. Like, I know that God expects me to be obedient to the law, but I don't know how to get there because I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, but I'm not succeeding. And then you have this response that maybe is something like your prayer life last night. Oh, wretched man or woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, in 1889, many of our people had this very experience of failure and confusion while earnestly desiring to serve God. You want to serve God, you want to do what's right, but you keep messing up along the way. I know what God wants, but I don't know how to get there. And we feel so condemned by our failed pursuits. You ever been there? But the 1889 revivals and the testimonials of people who encountered the message of Christ our righteousness shows us, first of all, that freedom is possible and that freedom is found when we see our message in its proper perspective and we understand what our role is and what God's role, in, role is in the plan for transformation. And we also see how God views us in our journey towards that transformation. Because some of us may feel like it's not until I'm transformed that God would actually look upon me favorably. But in the book, Return to Latter-Rain, Volume 1 by Ron Duffield, it's, it's the most exhaustive history we have 
of what actually happened in eight, what happened leading into 1888 and afterwards until about 1891 is when this book ends. Um, and it's using only primary sources. So it's not relying upon historians' point of view or what they think happened or what they say happened. It's looking at what Ellen White said happened, what people who were present at the meeting said happened, and so forth. It's really, really helpful. It's the best treaties we have on this. And in chapters 8 and 9 of his book, uh, called 1889 Revivals 1 and 1889 Revivals 2, I was flabbergasted and nearly offended to find out that Pentecost was happening in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and the latter rain was falling in the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1889, 1890, 1891, 1892, and 1893, and no one told me. No one told me that the very thing we're praying for and have prayer initiatives for has already happened and there's a blueprint to see it happen again. The history's there, guys. And so uh, that book can actually be found in the booths, uh, in booth 111 at the Return of the Latter Rain uh, booth. And also, if you go to ellenwhiteaudio.org, you can download the audiobook for free. Um, and all the footnotes are there. So Pentecost and Healing Rain were falling on the Seventh-day Adventist Church from 1889 to 1893 and a little afterwards. And Ellen White tells us that the Latter Rain was beginning to fall then. So clearly something important was being communicated at that time. If heaven is going to send its most powerful sign of endorsement, if heaven is sending rain, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in response to a message, it's endorsing what has been shared. And so the rest of this morning is going to be covering some of those themes uh, that were addressed during that time. I can't do all of it, right? There's, there's very little time today. But again, I'll resource you and do what I can. So here's the problem. Romans 3.23 tells us that we all continue to sin. It's in the continuative in the original language. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of that sin is death. Isaiah 59 verse 2 tells us why. Because that sin separates us from God. And John 1.4 tells us that God is our source of life. That's a problem. Yeah? God made us for life. Jesus came that we may have life and have that more abundantly. But we right now are living in a battlefield where there are casualties. Yeah? We live in the midst of a great controversy. So humanity is facing a massive two-phase problem. Death and that which causes death, which is sin. But God's posture towards us does not change even though we have fallen. Amen? And this is one of the beautiful messages that was shared during that time. His posture has always been for us and not against us. And we see this clearly in our next text. Because in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 we're told that God demonstrated his own love for us. Notice Jesus didn't come to convince the Father to love you. God sent Jesus because he already loved you. And this says while we were still sinners. You with me? That's good news. This implies that God is for you and not against you. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even though we have sinned, God, seeing us in our darkest condition, sent Jesus to die for us and to provide for us complete salvation. So God clearly here is taking the initiative and doesn't wait for us to do something before he comes after us and begins the work of redemption in our behalf. So that's very good news then. God is not reactionary. He's the one making the first move before we get anything right. And in encountering his love for us first, this is what awakens the reciprocating love in our own hearts. 1 John 4, 19 phrases it this way, that we love him because he first loved us. It is impossible to love God until you first encounter his love for you. Amen? Which is, again, why Ellen White says that we should spend a thoughtful hour every single day reflecting upon the life of Christ, particularly the closing scenes. So, Jesus not just loves you, and God not only loves you, but he longs for you to know and believe the love that he has for you. Not just to hear about it, to be intellectually convinced. He wants you to experientially know it and to believe it with every ounce of your being. That's 1 John chapter 4, and verse 16. And this most precious message, I believe, is what God wants the people in the world to see to better understand the love that God has for them, and it will give them the intrinsic motivation to forsake anything that would pull them away from him. Amen? No one is going to surrender to God unless they first know that he already loves them. Right? Why would you just surrender to someone who you don't believe has your best interest at heart? You wouldn't want to do that, which is, again, why God is smart and shows you love before you deserve it, which awakens within you a desire to reciprocate. So here's the big issue. We don't naturally possess the righteousness that the law requires. Yeah? We don't have it. 
We lost our robes of righteousness as a people when Adam and Eve sinned and lost their covering. And that's why they were naked and felt shame. But thankfully, also in Genesis 3, we see that God preaches the gospel of a suffering Messiah who is to come, who will eventually crush the serpent's head. And Romans 8 breaks down what's available to us through his conquering of Satan and how he conquered Satan. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says this, There is therefore how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are where? For those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Amen? So Jesus' death clears all of the debt that Romans 6.23 told us. The wages of sin is death. Jesus' death clears out that debt, and it frees us from the condemnation that we deserve in the judgment. And this becomes credited to your account and my account when we respond to his faith in us and place our faith in him and trust him to be our righteousness. We see that the Spirit is the agent that God uses to set us free from that cycle of sin and death that apparently is so strong that he equates it to a law, right? For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made us free from the law of sin and death. And the solution so far seems uh, to be that we need to be found in Christ to have the Spirit do a work that lives in us that's desperately needed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 alludes to this. Therefore, if anyone is where? In Christ, what does God do? He makes them a new creation. The old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. So going back to Romans 8, here's what we're told. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Here's the point. It took me a long time to understand this verse. It it took me quite a while. The law couldn't save us. That's the point he's making here. What the law could not do, save you because it's weak to the flesh because my flesh can't keep the law on its own. God did by, did by sending Jesus in flesh just like yours, right? In flesh like yours. And in doing so, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh and overcame sin in the flesh. He became our perfect standard of righteousness in human flesh so that when we're found in Christ, all the achievements that Christ achieved are now credited to us through his spirit. That's the point. And in verse chapter 4, we see the end result of that. Jesus does all of this so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Jesus living the successful and righteous life in flesh like ours opens the door for us to have access to a righteous life that we have not lived and that the law requires. And we have access to that in Christ by faith through His Spirit. So this is what's implied when you hear the phrase, Christ, our righteousness. We have earned no righteousness. We have not achieved righteousness. We have access to what was achieved in the past in Christ, and it becomes a present reality in our lives through faith and the outworking of his Holy Spirit. That's what's implied. And Ellen White breaks it down like this. She says, the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. Now, some of these are nerdy terms that we don't define very often, but we use them, and it kind of confuses our people. So the imputed righteousness of Jesus is his righteous life being credited to you when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. All of his achievements are credited to you. You are viewed as righteous when you accept Christ and trust him to be your righteousness. And then at that very same time, another phase, that's what's called justification. At the very same time, another phase begins of Jesus now making that a literal reality in your life by changing your life, right? That's called sanctification or it's imparted righteousness. That's the tangible delivery of Christ's righteous life in your life. That's why when we give our lives to Jesus, there's things that we don't do that we used to do before we gave our lives to Jesus, right? So you're viewed as righteous, And in that process of him viewing you as being righteous, he now begins a process of making you righteous. Does that make sense? That you are viewed as righteous while he's making you righteous, assuming you walk in this situation, right? If you leave Jesus, the process starts all over again. But again, he's for you. You should come back and keep going, right? 
So we are declared righteous while God is making us righteous. And this is such good news for people who want to overcome and who make sincere decisions for Christ, but they wrestle when they still see sins in their life as they're striving heavenward. And you wonder, how does God view me right now? Right? I know at the end of the line that this is what I need to look like. When, when, when the assembly line process has finished, this is what I need to look like. Right? Especially if we're going to live in the midst of the closing crisis. And so this is what we focus on. And we think, I have to be that then if I'm going to be saved then. But then a really difficult question comes. Yeah, but what if I'm not that right now? Am I saved right now? Does that make sense? We wrestle with this. But if we're striving to overcome, if we are in Jesus, right? If we are striving for heaven or journey, and we're going through a process of overcoming, Ellen White says there will be many times when we have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus. But we are not cast off, not forsaken, no, if we're continuing in the journey. Because he's not done with you yet, right? Ellen White equates this to the growing of a plant, right? And I don't even have time to go into this because I just, I don't. But there's a chapter in Christ Object Lessons called The Blade, the Kernel, and the Ear, something along those lines where she makes this point very clearly that we are viewed as righteous at every, she said we can be perfect at every stage of development. That you can be viewed as perfect at every stage of development. So if you plant a seed of corn right now, it would be illogical to expect that that will be a full stock of corn with full ears of corn tomorrow. That just doesn't make sense. That's not how agriculture works, which is why Jesus used the illustration of agriculture, right? But here's the problem. That's how we view ourselves, though. We think that's crazy, thinking about agriculture. But when we think about our spiritual lives, we think, no, 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 like, I'm clearly not good enough because I'm not a full stock of corn. You're what you should be right now. If you're staying in the soil, if you're receiving the graces of heaven, if you're growing and striving, those things are going to leave your life. God's not done with you yet, but you're viewed as righteous while he's making you righteous if you continue in the process. So here's the point. Don't leave. Don't quit. Don't pull yourself out of the soil. And that's what Satan tells you. You've been reading your Bible for three weeks now and you are no different. Just quit. Those thoughts don't come from Jesus. Those are coming from someone who knows that this process ends in success because he who began a good work in you is going to complete it. It's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But it takes time, guys. No one says amen in the penitential prayer and is perfect from then until the second coming of Jesus. It just doesn't happen that way. But if you remain in the soil and keep trusting Jesus, this process does end in success. Amen? God's people are set up to overcome, but keep moving forward. Keep trusting Jesus. That's the point. Okay? Uh, there are two messages in Audioverse where I do more on this because I just don't have time. Why Adventism Matters and the Answer to Our Deficiencies. And I'll, I'll give you a whole bunch of resources at the end you can email me for because I just I don't have time. Okay? Ellen White talks about this in Justification by Faith. She says, what is justification by faith? It's the work of God. The work of who? The work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their own nothingness, that's when they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When we recognize that we bring nothing to the table in and of ourselves and that we need access to a righteousness that we can't conjure up on our own, it's humbling, isn't it? It's deeply humbling. It lays our glory in the dust. And this falling upon the rock of Christ will lead us to plead with him to be our righteousness and to save us from ourselves. And if we do that, there's very good news. Because in John chapter 6 and verse 37, we're told, And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, Jesus says, I will by no means cast out. Amen? If you come to Jesus and plead with him to be your righteousness, he's not going to cast you out. He's not going to push you away. This is precious, precious good news for us. When you see how insufficient you are, it will drive you to Jesus. And when you come to him, he's not going to push you away. Now, you can walk away on your own. You have free will, but he has no intention of pushing you away, which means, again, that God does not have a posture of being against you, but for you. Amen? Unfortunately, the nation of Israel did not understand their nothingness, did they? In Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 24, three times they say, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is in response to them encountering the glory of God and seeing the expectations of God. And it spooks them. And they say, all that you have spoken, we will do. 
All the words that the Lord has said we will do, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. They saw that the law was important and it caused them to respond with the promise to obey. But their worldview at that time led them to think that they had to do things to get God to leave them alone and to care about them. Why? Because they spent 400 years in Egypt where a religion was based upon you having to do things to appease the gods and get them to notice you and to favor you. You with me? They were see- this is called syncretism, right? They were seeking to follow the God of the Bible while using principles from pagan religion. They were trying to intermingle two different approaches to religion. And in turn, did they succeed? Yes or no? No, they failed miserably. Less than 40 days later, they're running laps around a golden calf in pagan revelry. Why? Because all the Lord has spoken, we're incapable of doing in our flesh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 says. But they didn't know that. Because the religion of the Egyptians says, you got to do stuff to get God to notice you and to even care about you. Unfortunately, we have many Egyptian Adventists who think, I got to do stuff to get God to notice me and to favor me. But remember, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says that God already loved you and sent Jesus before you got anything right. Does he desire you to do right? Of course, but you're not going to be able to do that without Jesus. Right? We want a faith that works by love, but you're only going to find that love by first encountering his love. Are you with me? So because that's the religion of the Egyptians, they didn't get it. And so the God of the Bible, though, is not one that you had to do things to appease to get him to notice you. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8 tells us that God wanted us to build a sanctuary. Why? So that he could dwell among us. And John chapter 1 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. They refer, another word for the word is Emmanuel, which means... God with us, and I would say God for us. Are you with me? We do not worship a God of wood and stone and from Egyptian lore. Amen? We serve a God of love who has pursued us in our darkest moments. Why? Because he knows that only by love is love awakened. And obedience will not be possible without true love. And that true love only comes by first encountering his love for us, which we have never deserved. You with me? And that's the point. So this process and this thinking still continued all the way until the day before Joshua dies, right? To the end of Joshua's life, who saw quite a bit in his time. In Joshua chapter 24, he gives that whole saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You can do your thing, whatever, but I'm in my house, they're going to serve the Lord. Maybe some of you have those placards in your house, little cross-stitch things or something else. And the people say, no, 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 we also will serve the Lord. And you would assume at this time that Joshua says, oh, good, they finally get it. Amen. Instead, in in initial glances, it looks like he gives the worst pastoral response ever because he says, you can't serve the Lord and God's not going to forgive your sins. Can you imagine a pastor saying that to his congregation? We will serve the Lord. You can't serve the Lord and he's not going to forgive your sins. Is Joshua just losing it because he's angry at these people? No, 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 no. Here's the issue. Andrew's study Bible picks up on this and gives some great commentary. They say this reaction of Joshua to Israel's pledge of commitment echoes Israel's similar pledge at Sinai many years earlier, Nexus 19 and 24. Even though the words were appropriate, the people needed to realize that it was not enough to make a brave declaration and pledge of allegiance. That's not enough. They also needed to recognize their inability in themselves to obey God and that they could not be forgiven while they were depending upon their own strength and righteousness. That's why he says what he says. They needed to trust wholly in the merits of the promised Savior who would forgive their sins and give them power to obey. Amen? Amen But yet some of us are still struggling struggling with that Egyptian mindset. Now, there's more that could be said here on the real issue between the Old and New Covenants, but I, again, just don't have time for this. There's a message in audio verse called The Grace of Christ in the New Covenant. I can give you notes for that or give you audio, but I just don't have time. But the main issue was this. Who was going to be responsible for ensuring that the people keep the law of God? Was it the people or God? That's the issue in the covenants. Who's the power source? 
Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 makes it very clear that God is the power source through his spirit who would empower the people to obey. And he could only do that because his son came and lived that perfect law-abiding life in flesh like yours and mine. And this is what the spirit makes a reality in our lives, right? That's that imparted righteousness. That's what sanctification looks like. That's what the Bible, yeah, I just said that. Okay. And Ellen White says this very thing in Christ Object Lessons. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent, all-powerful. And whatever is to be done at God's command may be accomplished in whose strength? In his strength. And then she says that all of his biddings are enablings. In another place in Christ Object Lessons, she says, In every command and in every promise of the word of God is the power, the very life of God by which the command may be fulfilled and the promise realized. That means you should never be threatened when God speaks to you and tells you his will. You should never be threatened when God asks you to surrender, and you should never be threatened when God gives you his commandments. Why? Because in the power or in the command itself is the power to walk in the command. That's how this works. The command may be fulfilled and the promise realized through the promise itself. He who by faith receives the word is receiving the very life and the character of God. And this is played out in John chapter 5. There's a paralytic laid at the pool of Bethesda who's been an invalid for 38 years. Ellen White gives us some more insight. He's the most helpless case there, and he's there and paralyzed because of a lifestyle of sin. Now, in a Jewish mindset, he's filled with shame and self-hatred because I did this to myself. This is what I deserve. But there was a tradition in that era that I don't believe was biblical, and you can argue with me later. But there was a tradition in that era that when the water stirred, people believed it was an angel, and the first person who got in that water was healed. Here's my issue with this. If that's actually saying that God favors people who get in the water first, this is teaching survival of the fittest. And that's a cornerstone view of evolution that we do not ascribe to as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. Amen? We don't believe in evolution. We don't even believe in theistic evolution. It's all repugnant. And so... What's really happening here, and I think that the reason why Jesus does what he does, because she says that he was looking for the most helpless case there, I think it was to dispel this view in Israel. God's not just, you know, benefiting the fittest. I'm looking for the most helpless case. So if you're the most helpless case there and that water is stirred, what are your chances to get in that water? It ain't going to happen. But you better believe on day one when he was first, I don't know how often this happened. Let's say it's 10 times a year. You would assume that the first time that water was stirred, he flopped like a fish desperately to get in that water, only to see someone else get in before him. And I'm sure he was devastated. That was my one chance. But then it happens again. And he flops and he rolls, but he doesn't make it in. Imagine how he feels five years later, after the 50th time of this happening. I mean, yeah, he may try to get in the water, but he's not trying near as hard as he did on day one. Now imagine 38 years later. Now when the water is stirred, his heart rate doesn't even increase. He doesn't even shift his body weight anymore. Why? Because this is what I deserve. My case is hopeless. I did this to myself. I can't change. And that's why Jesus shows up when he does. Amen? Because Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. Jesus came to set the captives free. Jesus came to bring comfort to those who mourn. That's what the gospel's meant to do, guys. It's not just meant to change your bad theology. It's meant to heal your broken heart. And Jesus wanted to heal this man's broken heart and his body. Amen? And so he comes up to the guy and asks him a question. Do you want to be made well? You would assume the answer to that is obvious, and it's kind of a dumb question. But he's Jesus, and Jesus isn't dumb. And second of all, the guy's answer is lame. And it's not because he's lame. His answer is lame. Well, I can't because it's a, he's, he's telling all the reasons for why he can't be healed. And I, you just assume that the thought that goes through Jesus' mind is, I didn't ask you why can't you be made well and why aren't you made well. I asked you, do you want to be made well? And the answer is clear. No, because this is what I deserve. Jesus is asking this man to exchange identities, no longer having an identity based upon what he's done to himself and what people have done to him, but based upon what Christ has done for him. And some of us need that same identity switch today. So Jesus asked the man to exchange identities, and so then he tells him, rise, take up your mat, and walk. Now, if you were to go out to somebody in a street corner in Louisville right now who's in a wheelchair and told them to get up, that would be cruel. That would be cruel. 
But Jesus isn't cruel. And why does all this matter? Because Jesus understands the kingdom principle that in the command is the power to walk in the command. And that's what happens in John chapter 5. And Ellen White says this very thing. Through the same faith, we may receive spiritual healing. By sin, we've been severed from the life of God. Our souls are palsied. Of ourselves, we are no more capable of living a holy life than was the impotent man capable of walking. We are spiritual invalids were it not for Jesus. There are many who realize their helplessness and who long for that spiritual life which will bring them into harmony with God, but they're vainly striving to obtain it. That's the Romans 7 experience. You ever been there? No matter what I do, I just can't get up. I just can't. In despair, they cry, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But then she says, let these desponding, struggling ones look where? Look up. The Savior is bending over the purchase of his blood, saying with inexpressible tenderness and pity, wilt thou be made whole? Do you actually want things to change? Do you actually believe that I'm for you and not against you? And he bids you arise in health and peace. Do not wait to feel that you were made whole. Believe his word and it will be fulfilled. If this guy waited for a holy mojo feeling in his legs, he never would have walked again. His legs are spaghetti noodles. They can't support his body weight. He had to believe what the word of God said in spite of what he felt. Are you with me? And if the word of God can create a universe out of nothing, beloved, he can change your life. He can raise you from the dead. He can give you power to overcome. But do you believe what his word says? Or do you view his commands as threats and as insult and as a mockery of your current condition? Who do you think of when you hear God says? Is it a healthy picture of God? Is it an unhealthy picture of God? What do you see in the mirror when God tells you to do things? Do you see an unhealthy picture of yourself? Or do you see a child who's beloved of God? Because the answer to those questions matters a lot. We have a lot of conversations at conferences like this about hermeneutics. And hermeneutics are important. It's how you interpret scripture. But your biggest hermeneutic is your view of God. If you have an unhealthy view of God, you're going to read unhealthy, come to unhealthy conclusions when you read scripture. That God is against me and not for me. If you have unhealthy views of yourself, you will come to read every verse in the Bible that looks like a curse as if it's personally directed at you. This is why mental health matters, and this is why the 1888 message, the gospel of Christ our righteousness, was meant to open our eyes to the fact that God has always been for you. He's not been against you. That you have help in this journey through the power of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus walked in flesh just like yours and overcame. Why? So that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in your life, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's why, guys. You're not losers. You're not left to fight for yourselves. Satan tells you that. And your Egyptian root structures, while trying to be an Adventist, tell you that. But the Bible doesn't tell you that. Are you with me? Do not wait to feel that you were made whole. Believe his word and it will be fulfilled. Put your will, your power of choice, on the side of Christ. Will to serve him. And in acting upon his word, you will receive strength. Whatever may be the evil practice, the master passion which through long indulgence binds both soul and body, Christ is able and longs to deliver. Amen? Here's the point. The only reason why Jesus would bear this long with people and love them in spite of who they have been is because he sees something of value in them that they don't even see in themselves. That's the faith of Jesus, beloved. When you read in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, here are they that keep the commandments of God. That's only going to be possible if they first believe that God already loves them. And they're letting God do in, through, and for them what they can't do for themselves. And second of all, it says they have the faith of Jesus. Not faith in Jesus. The faith of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 gives us a picture of this. Our evangelist uses this text a lot. It talks about Jesus knocking on the door of our heart. But in the original language, it's in the continuative, which means that he has been knocking, he is knocking now, and has no intention of not knocking tomorrow. But whose door is he knocking on? Previously in Revelation chapter 3, we're told that it's a group of people whose religious experience makes him want to vomit. Which, by the way, Ella White, as early as 1852, diagnosed our movement as being in a Laodicean condition. We weren't even Seventh-day Adventists yet. 
And that virus was already in our system. 1852. We were incorporated in 1863. But the background of the people that he's talking to are people whose religious experience makes him want to vomit. But Jesus doesn't just say, you make me sick. You know what he tells us? But I'm offering you a solution in myself. I'll give you gold tried in the fire, a faith that works by love, Ellen White says. I'll give you white garments, the garments of Christ's spotless righteousness. But here's the tough one. Lastly, he says, I'll give you ISAV, spiritual discernment to recognize your true condition. And this is where many of us have failed. We think Laodicean Christians are people who drink coffee, watch movies, or go to church on Sunday. That's not a Laodicean Christian. A Laodicean, the point of the Laodicean message is you are not who you think you are at every aspect of your being, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and otherwise. And until you come to realize your nothingness and come to me for a solution, you're in trouble. And every single Seventh-day Adventist right now has to look in that mirror of Revelation chapter 3 and ask themselves some difficult questions. Who am I? Who do I actually believe I am? Who is God really? And this is why I am firmly convinced that there is a heavy mental health component to the Revelation 3 message. Because we're believing lies about ourselves, we're believing lies about God, and we're beating ourselves up and we're self-sabotaging our Christian experience because we don't believe the truth. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so is God. You with me? We've got to start dealing with our stuff. And we've committed the sin of Kellogg, that we have separated mental health from the health message. Ellen White never did that. She never did that. But we do. Did you know the work in mental health is part of the medical missionary work? And if the call of Jesus was to heal the brokenhearted, we're not talking about heart disease, guys. It's talking about the heavy heart issues that we as a movement shark from. We don't want to talk about that stuff. Why? Because it's uncomfortable because we don't want to acknowledge who we are. Well, if we were already branded as being that in 1852, then just own it and deal with it. You with me? Come face to face with the fact that you are not who you think you are and you need Jesus. And that's the point of the gospel. It offers you accountability, but it also offers you acceptance. Unfortunately, the two ditches in Adventism give you one or the other. We give you a gospel of acceptance or a gospel of accountability. But the true message of the gospel gives you both. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the gospel that Jesus preached. And that's the message that we should be preaching. And our message should be healing people with their broken hearts, not just their broken theology. So we better start dealing with mental health as a movement. You with me? Ellen White gave us a ton of counsel about it for a reason. Yeah? I'm just saying. All right. So here's the point, though. These people, they got issues in Revelation chapter 3. We're a mess. And yet, for whatever reason, Jesus is standing, knocking on the door of our heart. And again, it's in the continuative in the Greek, which means that he has been knocking. He is knocking now and has no reason of not knocking tomorrow. Why? It must be because there's something of value on the other side of that door. It's you. And this is why the Spirit of God speaks to you when you're about to believe things that aren't true, when you're about to do things that aren't good. It's not because he's condemning you. It's because he's offering you something better in himself. And if you understood that conviction of sin is not rejection or condemnation, but an invitation to something better, we wouldn't run from him. But what I love is the fact that he's not leaving that door. Imagine what the neighbors are thinking. Guy's been there for years, making a fool of himself on your porch. Why? And if you looked in the face of Jesus, you're probably going to see a few things. The first is sadness. I wish I was in there. I wish they would let me do what I know that I could do for them. And I think the second would be anticipation. Maybe they just can't hear me. Maybe they're just not ready yet. So I'll keep knocking. And knocking and knocking. Why? Because of the faith of Jesus. He sees something in you that you don't see in you. And he's not going to leave until you do. Or until there comes a point in time in which he has no other option because you have closed the door forever. But until that very last moment, he will love you until you breathe your last breath. And even then, he's going to miss you for eternity.
That's the gospel, guys. And that's a message that God was trying to bring to our church years ago. And we need to understand this. It's a blessing. It's a gift to us. And the greatest example of the faith of Jesus is found at Calvary. Ella White says this. She says, the faith of Jesus, it's talked of, but it's not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Jesus becoming our sin bearer that he might become our sin pardoning savior. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. And faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is us receiving the faith of Jesus. Amen? It's living your life as if the gospel was true. E.J. Wagner put it this way. God chooses men not for what they are, but for what he can make of them. And there is no limit to what he can make of even the meanest and the most depraved if they are only willing and believe his word. There is nothing impossible for God, but he does not cross the threshold of the will. And this is why your view of God and your view of yourself matters. And why the theology that buttresses the things we teach and what picture of God it gives, even if it's indirectly, matters. Because if you give the implication that God is against you and not for you, while trying to preach the Adventist message, it confuses our people and makes them invalids. And I have counseled far too many of them, and it needs to stop. It has to stop. God has never been against you. There has never been a day that God has been against you. There has never been a day when God was not for you and working for your good. So the way in which we communicate our message matters. We need to use tact and wisdom. Stop and ask yourself the question as you're writing your slides, writing your Bible studies, and writing your sermons. What type of a picture of God is implied, even if it's not explicitly communicated? I've met a lot of invalids who are invalids because of implication. If you, if you did a survey in Adventism right now and asked people, are you saved by your works? Everyone would give the right answer. But if you ask what was implied by the way in which some people communicate the message, there could be confusion. Details matter. So this why this now hopefully will make Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17 make more sense. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And now we see why. The gospel is amazing. For it's the power of God what draws us and keeps us to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith, God's pursuing faith in us, to faith, our reciprocating faith in him. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And in the Hebrew in Habakkuk, which is quoting, you know what it actually says? The just shall live by his faith. Christ's faith, not your faith. That's the answer, guys. So you may feel that your whole life has been a total disaster and has no potential to bear fruit, that there's no hope, and that you think that God is wasting his time on you. Maybe you wrestle with thoughts like this, and I meet many people who do. I've been sitting here year after year after year, and I'm no good. And you know what I believe he would tell you? Give me one more year. You know the parable of the fig tree? It's not putting out. They say, get rid of it. He says, no, 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 no. Give me one more year. Let me dig out all the lies that are in your hearts. Let me dig out all the false distortions of myself and of yourself that are in your heart. Give me a year to cultivate that soil. Give me a year to nourish you, to nurture you, to send the latter rain from heaven to strengthen and encourage you. And let's see what happens. And beloved, it's that time of year, isn't it? All of us are making all these resolutions. I want to lose weight. I want to get right. I want to start reading my Bible again. My appeal to you is this. Give him a year. Give Jesus a year in studying and researching the most precious message and see what happens. See what he'll do for you. I believe it will radically change your life. You know why? Because it's radically changed my life. It's radically changed the lives of people that I've seen hear this message. And according to what we're seeing in the history of 1889 revivals, it was raising people from the dead. People who were in experiences of bondage and discouragement, feeling they would never be good enough for God, were having the chains broken in their experience. Why? 
because the true message of the gospel sets the captives free. It heals the brokenhearted. It comforts those who are mourning their lack of success in the Christian experience. It gives them oil of gladness and joy and will exchange their ash- beauty for their ashes. This message can do that for you. I've seen it. But will you give them a chance? That's the question. This message is meant to heal your broken heart and to set you free. So would you take a year to study this message, to come to better understand it for yourself and to see if it changes your life? He's inviting you to come to him, broken as you are, and to see what he can do for you. And if you come to Jesus, there's a precious promise that he's given us. Listen to this. We covered this earlier in John chapter 6 and verse 37, that he who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Ellen White was writing a correspondence to someone who was deeply discouraged and felt that they would never be good enough for God. By the way, Ellen White was familiar with that very experience. Did you know that? Read the first volume of the testimonies. Her own testimony was an unhealthy view of God. By the way, you know who else had unhealthy views of God? Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, William Miller, and Ellen White. And you know what happened when they came to respond to the faith of Jesus and to see themselves in the way that God saw them? the world became a different place. We would not have the Protestant Reformation were it not for people coming into face-to-face with the faith of Jesus, with the gospel. We wouldn't be where we are today were it not for the fact that God met people where they were with really unhealthy views of God and unhealthy views of themselves, and he brought them to a higher experience, and he used them as champions of that message to awaken generations that were standing on their shoulders right now. But the unfortunate thing is, we could give two rips about the process they went through and the sacrifices they made, and we're believing the same lies that held them captive. We're inheriting a generational curse that they overcame. Shame on us. It's a disservice to their sacrifices and the work of God in their life. But that's the human condition, guys. We are dead set against the gospel until we encounter the faith of Jesus and recognize that there's a bunch of lies in my head and in my heart that i got to deal with, which is why Ellen White tells us to spend a thoughtful hour every single day reflecting upon the life of Christ and particularly the closing scenes. Why? Because we're so prone to forget it. I believe it said of Martin Luther, he said, I need to hear the gospel daily. Why? Because I forget it daily. Yeah? But listen to what Ellen White said to this person who was deeply discouraged, feeling that she would never be good enough for God. Just manna from heaven. She says, the message from God to me for you is, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you have nothing else to plead before God, but this one promise from your Lord and Savior, you have the assurance that you will never, never be turned away. Some of us have felt this way, and we may feel that we have nothing to offer God today, and it's true, you don't. You have nothing to offer God. But if you come before him with this one promise, that Jesus, you told me, that if I come to you, you will no wise cast me out. Listen to this. She says, it may seem to you that you are hanging upon a single promise, But appropriate that one promise, and it will open to you the whole treasure house of the riches of the grace of Christ. Cling to that promise, and you are safe. But listen to this. Him that cometh unto me, I will no wise cast out, presents this assurance to Jesus, and you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. If you have nothing to offer Jesus today, but that he's made this promise that him who comes into me, I will no wise cast them out. In that moment, you are as safe as though inside of the city of God because he's for you and not against you. Amen? Always has been and always will be. And this is the message that God was trying to get through our heads years ago. So where do you go to find this message? Some people may even say, well, yeah, but Jones and Wagner, they had this time where they went crazy. You're not going to find that stuff in the Ellen White app, first of all. Just think about it. But second of all, here are resources that you can trust that will be a huge blessing to you in just understanding what happened and what were they saying. Return to the Latter Rain, Volume 1 by Ron Duffield. It's a big book. Do not skip the footnotes. They make the book. But if you're scared of big books, it's amazing. I believe this book has prophetic significance. I am not lying to you today. It'll change your life. But 
If you're intimidated by big books, here's the good news. You can go to www.ellenwhiteaudio.org and you can listen to it faux free, y'all. Free. Amen. Amen? Lessons on Faith by A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner and Living by Faith by A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner. These are compilations of their writings. Um, there have been years where the Muslim Relations Booth or Avenant, uh, Amazing Facts Canada has had those books. It's right next door to my booth. See if they have it. I don't know if they do or not. Uh, the other one, The Third Angel's Message by A.T. Jones. These are a series of meetings that he preached that Ellen White wholeheartedly endorsed. And as Jones was starting to wander, told him, Brother, go back to what you preached that year and read it again. Here's the good news. You can get that book for free. You can get access to many of those messages for free at the Adventist Pioneer Library booth, which is booth number 344. They're for free. You can get them there. If you want to see all the messages that he shared during that series, covering the stuff between um, liberty of conscience and all that stuff as well, you can buy it at the Adventist Pioneer Library, booth 344. You can get all these resources there. You can also read the 1888 materials by Ellen White. It took me a few months, but it's worth it. And then you can read manuscripts and memories. This isn't actually necessarily by Ellen White. It's actually part of the 1888 materials that tells all the correspondence that people are sending to Ellen White. 1888 materials shows letters she was sending back to them. Here's another one that's amazing. Amazing. I don't have time to go into this. Actually, I do. I've got five minutes. So Ellen White was clamoring. She was basically asked to leave the country because she was preaching a message that wasn't being received. Uh, and was sent to Australia. God didn't call her there, but she went to honor church authority. It's a whole other story. Okay, and so she goes to Australia, and she pleads with them, please send Prescott to preach at our camp meetings, because camp meetings back then were not esoteric veggie meat fests, where we just hung out with each other and felt better about each other. They were evangelistic series to reach the community. And she said, send Prescott. They said no. Well, she said, send Jones. They said no. Then she said, send Prescott. They said no, but they eventually did send Prescott. And he preaches a series of messages that she gives such a ringing endorsement of. And she says that this is the way that we should do our public meetings from now on. Unfortunately, we didn't. Um, in fact, when she sent one of the manuscripts of his messages, she was told it was heresy and they wouldn't publish it. Um, but we do have access to some of those manuscripts, but not all of them of the messages that Prescott preached. She says, not one of those messages what I consider to be a quote-unquote doctrinal discourse, but... There was power in what he shared. People saw Jesus. And then, so what was he talking about? The law, creation, the, the fall of man, the nature of Christ, the Sabbath. Like he was preaching our message, but he was saturating it in the gospel, giving it a context where Ellen White says that all of our individual beliefs find their power in relation to that theme, the theme of the cross. Prescott did that and saw booming results. But that's not really been the model that we've adopted at large. But she said we should. And so there's an example, just kind of a case study that you can use. And all the quotes that Ellen White has about that time at the uh, Armadale camp meeting are found in the preface to that book. It's amazing. It's a work done by, uh, I don't even, uh, it hurts me to even say this, the late Fred Bischoff. Um, I still haven't gotten over that. So anyway, th they have been compiled and Ron Duffield, I think together, the both of them put those together. That all the quotes Ellen White said, she said that people, would come, people thought in the community that they didn't want to come to the meetings because Adventists are a bunch of kooks and all they're going to hear about is, the, is Moses and Sinai. That's what they said. And they were already thinking that Adventists at that stage in Australia believed that Jesus wasn't God. And so they just didn't want to come. But Prescott was a trailblazer and it was really smart what they did. They took down shorthand his messages and printed them immediately after they were preached and distributed in the surrounding communities. And people heard what was being said and said, ah, I'll come. And Ellen White said the people would come on the property and their faces would go pale. And they said, this man is inspired. And people would say, we have never heard Jesus preached like this before. And they baptized scores of people. We have access to some of those. We would do well to read them. You can get it at the Adventist Pioneer Library, again, booth 344. And you can go to the ellenwhiteaudio.org website, and you can listen to Jones's, uh, some of his books, some of Wagner's books, Spirit of Prophecy books. Um, you can read uh, some of Prescott's stuff. You can hear some of that being read audibly if it's easier to ingest it that way. And both of Ron Duffield's book right now, Return to Latter Rain, Volume 1, and Wounded in the House of His Friends, um, you can hear both of those for free. Uh, and the footnotes are read in the very context of the chapter that they come out of, which makes it really helpful. If it's in the middle of a sentence, you'll say footnote, reads a footnote, then comes back and just keeps reading. Really, really helpful. It's worth it.
It's worth your time. Because if, if the latter rain was being poured out in Adventism in the 1890s, 1889, 1890, and a little bit afterwards, if, that, if Ellen White says that's what happened, we would do well to figure out what was going on. Because at the same time, a Sunday law was seeking to be passed by the U.S. government. And what was God doing to prepare people to stand in the day of God? The message of Christ, our righteousness, and religious liberty, liberty of conscience. Those two messages were being preached with power. Jones debated Senator Blair in December of 1888. And that eventually shut down an attempt to pass a Sunday law. So what was God doing to prepare people to stand in the day of God and to be ready? It was that message of Christ, our righteousness. So how do you think God wants us to prepare? Hey, we want the latter rain. Hey, we want to be ready. It's the same thing, guys. It's the same thing. We have nothing to fear for the future except that we forget the way the Lord has led us in the past and in his teachings. We already have case studies of what worked. Just do it again and we can go home. Amen? Has this made sense this morning? Okay. There are resources available to you. Um, Email me. Take a picture of this and email me and I will send you a whole bunch more resources than what I've shared with you today because I just didn't have time. Okay? We're just giving little glimpses of parts of the, of the gospel of Christ our righteousness. There's a bunch more to it. Okay? But I hope this has made sense. I hope this has been helpful for you. If you have any questions, you can come by my booth or you can email me. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for being good to us. Thank you for allowing me to finish in time. I pray that you bless David as he prepares to share his seminar. And God, I just pray that your spirit would fall on us, that you would give us an insatiable desire to learn this message, to preach it as you want, not man's opinions. We want to know what you want. And God, show us, send the Spirit to give unction to that message. And may the whole world see the character of the glory of God. And we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.